Hi, this is Mark Wasserman. Welcome to the Skaboom podcast, which is the audio companion to my forthcoming book, Skaboom, an American ska and reggae oral history, which will be published later this year. The intro music for this episode is Guava Jelly, courtesy of Johnny Nash from his 1972 breakthrough album, I Can See Clearly Now. The song was written by a then-unknown Jamaican singer-songwriter. All this podcast focuses on the birth of a uniquely American version of ska and reggae that developed in the 80s. There were early American pioneers in the mid-60s and early 70s who laid the groundwork for popularizing ska, rocksteady, and reggae. Two of those American musical pioneers were Nash and his manager Danny Sims. In this episode, I'll explain how Nash, once dubbed the king of reggae, helped to bring Jamaican music into the pop mainstream. I'll also dig into how Nash ended up meeting and hiring a struggling Jamaican songwriter named Bob Marley and how that relationship would change both their lives and the course of reggae music history. While I'm sure you've heard of Nash and Marley, you may not be familiar with Sims, but he is integral to this story which is worthy of a Netflix documentary. The New York Times called Sims, who passed away in 2012, one of the people most responsible for Bob Marley's success, who has gotten the least amount of notice for it. Sims described his relationship with Marley thus, I guess I was his godfather. That is, in the street sense, I looked out for him. Sims was a trailblazer, becoming one of the first black American music producers, publishers, and promoters. Though he worked mostly with black acts, Sims also managed former teen star turned songwriter Paul Anka. He was also married for a time to the first black supermodel, Beverly Johnson. Sims opened Sapphires, the first black-owned supper club located in Times Square in Manhattan. The club was a popular hangout for the cream of the crop of 60s-era black entertainers like Sidney Poitier, Harry Belafonte, and Ozzie Davis. It was there that Sims met a young Nash, who was looking to reinvent himself after a string of pop hits in the late 50s. You must remember this, a kiss is still a kiss. Sims went on to become Nash's manager and they started the J.A.D. record label. Sapphires was also where Sims connected with members of the Gambino crime family. Author Roger Steffens, the preeminent Bob Marley expert, has confirmed this, saying in a 2012 interview with the independent newspaper in the U.K., Danny's mob connections were no secret. He admitted to me that his partner in J.A.D. records for decades was Joe Armone, head of one of the biggest crime families in America. I'm a mobster, he told me proudly more than once. Sims was also quoted as saying, You mentioned my name in New York, in the white or black community, and people left you alone. Sims later formed Hemisphere, a promotions company, which would become responsible for booking the top stars of the day. Nash, Sammy Davis Jr., Benny King, 
Aretha Franklin, Otis Renning, as well as Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. The real reason why Sims and Nash relocated to Jamaica in the late 60s has been the subject of much speculation. In John Missouri's book, Wailing Blues, it suggested that Sims was in hot water because the FBI viewed his work with Ali and Malcolm X with suspicion during the civil rights era. Once set up in Jamaica, Nash began recording and making contact with musicians across the island. Accounts vary, but in late 1966 or early 1967, Nash attended a Rastafarian celebration in Trenchtown, where he heard Bob Marley sing. Nash raved about the young singer to Sims. According to Sims, Johnny told me about this fantastic artist. He said the songs were great, and he had invited him up to see me at my house. At that meeting... Sims signed Marley, his wife Rita, and Peter Tosh to a contract to write songs for Nash. The effect of Marley and the Whalers' music was immediately evident on Nash's 1968 album, Hold Me Tight, which was recorded in Jamaica with Lynn Tate and the Jets. The song was a huge hit for Nash, reaching number five in both the U.S. and U.K. in 1968. According to Sims, Johnny loved reggae and he loved Bob and the guys. He taught Bob how to sing on the mic, and they taught Johnny how to play the reggae rhythm. Sims later signed Marley to a publishing deal and also signed the Whalers to J.A.D. Records. In his Marley biography, Catch a Fire, Timothy White writes, Sims was the man who would put Bob's unique sound on the airwaves. Yet he was always trying to dissuade Bob from actually recording reggae and message reggae at that. The chief way he saw Bob Marley being a moneymaker was, in his own words, in a rhythm and blues top 40 style. Sims himself also boasted to a reporter from the Village Voice, I discouraged Bob from doing the revolutionary stuff. I'm a commercial guy. I want to sell songs to 13-year-old girls, not to guys throwing spears. Recognizing Marley's songwriting talents, Sims put him on a retainer of $100 a week, which was good money at the time, especially in Jamaica, and he signed him to his publishing company, Cayman Music. Marley ended up writing or recording over 200 songs for Sims, which were later released as part of the Complete Whalers 1967-72 compilation. Though reggae proved to be a tough sell, Sims successfully pitched and sold Marley's I Shot the Sheriff to Eric Clapton and guava jelly to Barbara Streisand. 
The association between Sims, Nash, and Marley grew in 1970 when Nash brought Marley to Sweden for a year while Nash shot the film Love Is Not A Game. They worked on songs for the soundtrack, though none of their music appeared in the film, which flopped. Roger Steffens related a story during a presentation he gave in London for his Marley oral history, So Much Things to Say, about the time Nash and Marley spent together in Sweden and later in England. In 70 and 71, Johnny Nash took Bob Marley to Sweden in the dead of winter to help him write the soundtrack for a motion picture that he was going to star in. And um, Bob was very, very unhappy during that period. And uh, he came back and lived in London for a while. And eventually the Whalers band joined him there. And they began to tour colleges with Johnny Nash, who was being billed at the time as the king of reggae. Not Bob, Johnny Nash. And they brought the big bass drum, the Nyabinki drum with them. And there is an incredible story in here that Bunny tells of them being in the north of England in a theater opening for Johnny. And they come out with the big bass drum and they sing Rastaman chant. is mesmerized and they do their set and they have this snake line going all through the theater dancing and they demand an encore and they get the encore and they run through their entire repertoire and the audience wants more and Johnny is backstage stewing and they they finish their set and they they go outside and the audience follows them out most of the audience leaves and Johnny comes out and starts singing, and half the audience that's left leaves, and then he sings the second song, and there's about 10 people left, and finally, as he starts the third song, they leave too, and after that, the Wailers discover Johnny Nash in the back alley beating his fists against the brick wall. While in Sweden, Sims hired piano player John Rabbit Bundrick, a session musician from Houston, Texas, to help with the recording of the film soundtrack. Bundrick had never heard of Marley or reggae music, but while working together in the studio with Nash, Marley taught Bundrick how to follow him on piano while he played reggae rhythm guitar. Bundrick featured on Nash's number one hit, I Can See Clearly Now, and later played on the Whalers' Catch a Fire album. Here's a clip from an interview that Bundrick did in 2019 about how he Marley and Nash would work together on music and how Marley taught Nash how to play Stir It Up. Well, I played with Bob Marley because of Johnny Nash. Ah, okay. Johnny, Johnny Nash got involved. What's first? Johnny Nash. He was first. Yeah, he found me in Houston before I came over here. Okay. And took me to Stockholm. Uh, and I can see clearly now. Yeah, well, we get, did that in England. But really? He, he was huh? doing a movie over there. Okay. They, they wanted Johnny to do a movie with one of their Swedish actresses. And Johnny got me and uh, another uh, friend called Fred Jordan to come and do the music for it. And, of course, Johnny's songs as well. And so it was, a, it was like a, 
uh, it was like a songwriting house. In one room, there would be me with my electric piano writing loads of songs. Johnny would have his acoustic guitar in his bedroom or somewhere downstairs or outside, you know, doing. And one day I heard him go, ding, 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 ding. And I said, hmm, what that is? That don't sound like Bob, that don't sound like a Bob thing. That don't sound like a reggae thing. But it was reggae influence, you know. And so uh, later on, when we moved to London, I realized it was I can see clearly now. Well, the thing about the I can see clearly real quick is. Uh, he had a he had a version of it already recorded with guys in Jamaica, but obviously he wanted it to appeal to the world and not just mm -hmm. be a, a normal reggae track. Mm -hmm. So he got me in there to smooth it all out and Americanize it, loads of strings, okay. stuff like that. And so and you did some arrangement also. No, I re replaced all the instruments. Okay. That he brought over. So we we re-recorded it to just his voice. Then he got another. He got a drummer in, bass player, guitars, background singers, and I did all the keyboards, okay. you know, from scratch, and uh, we rebuilt the song. Okay, you know? and uh, he was well pleased with it. So were we all. Uh -huh. And uh, the the reggae influence was obviously because we had been living with Bob in Stockholm, and uh, so each one of us had our own room doing our own music. Johnny <laughs> could pick. Johnny Nash could pick which ones. Uh, he already published Bob Marley, uh -huh. so he had all of Bob Marley's collection of songs to choose from. I recorded a tape uh, on a little reel-to-reel -reel tape uh, in my in my bedroom where Johnny and Bob were in there, and Bob was on the on the bed uh, with his guitar, and Johnny was standing up, and Bob was teaching Johnny. Uh, how to sing uh, "Steer It Up" and stuff like that, and you can hear you can hear Johnny in the background picking it up, and then he, you can hear him singing a har harmony when Bob's singing. In 1972. Nash scored a pop hit in both the UK and the US with his version of Marley's Stir It Up, and Marley helped Nash record his smash hit, I Can See Clearly Now. Sims then signed Marley to CBS Records, but his first single, Reggae on Broadway, flopped. When Nash and Sims left London to promote their hit record, Marley and the Whalers were broke and stranded. During that time, the group continued to perform and struck a deal with Island Records that would ultimately make Marley a superstar. And so, after all that hard work, Nash and Sims were largely responsible for getting Marley out of Jamaica and internationalizing him and his music.
Marley's signing to Island did not mark the end of his association with Sims. Following his discovery in 1980 that his then-manager was embezzling money, Marley hired Sims to manage him. After a sold-out concert at Madison Square Garden in September 1980, Marley fell ill a few days later, just as he was about to sign a monumental new record deal with a $10 million advance. Unfortunately, that didn't happen, and he passed away of cancer in 1981. According to Steffens, the entire history of Bob Marley's career would have been radically different if it weren't for the fact that Bob, Peter Tosh, and Rita Marley were all receiving $100 a week from Danny from 1968 to 1972. Danny and Johnny's training brought Bob and Peter up to high international standards in both studio and stagecraft. Bob received his first serious money from publishing royalties for songs of his that Johnny Nash turned into international hit records. I hope you've enjoyed learning more about the story behind Johnny Nash, Bob Marley, and Danny Sims, who helped popularize reggae around the world. If you've listened and received some value from this episode, then please help support the podcast for as little as $3 per month on Patreon. Supporters get access to exclusive content like special episodes of the podcast and advanced promo chapters from the book. Take care.